Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this special episode, behind the scenes of the GMB Uber historic deal. How did it happen and what does it mean? Hello and welcome to this special edition of Union Jews, the UK's only all things Union podcast with me, Simon Sapper. Now, when GMB struck a deal with Uber, a voluntary recognition deal, eyebrows went up around the country, around the world, in fact, given that Uber has a global footprint. How did it happen? How did a union with barely enough members to get anywhere near the statutory recognition process broker a deal to cover 90,000 people, potentially. I had the chance to sit down with the GMB's national organiser, Martin Smith, to ask him what was underneath the bonnet, or hood, if you're in North America, of this historic deal. Martin Smith, Head of Organising for the GMB. Very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks for spending some time with us. I mean, obviously, the, the big news story, the big news story is the deal with Uber which is a fascinating issue for, for, for many reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm really intrigued to know what's kind of under the bonnet. I've read the press releases. I've seen the, the article in Union News, for, for example. But, but for an organisation that was part of a $200 million-plus effort to banish unions in California, Proposition 22, they must have had some sort of character transplant to be able to, to, to reach a voluntary agreement with, with yourselves. What, what's the secret? If you're able to say, <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, it's, it's very hard to psychoanalyze a, a global corporation like Uber as it, as it was in the past with other companies where we got a, a deal with like Walmart mm. in the UK. I think our feeling for it would be that a lot of companies and organisations of this type, global corporations, at a certain point in their evolution, decide at some point, consciously or unconsciously, to stop being the disruptor that capitalism throws up and start putting down roots. And we've seen that in a number of companies. I suppose the, the equivalent is, is Amazon in the UK. And what we've seen in Uber is they have now in the UK much more European-based management structure and actually with their location in London, much more anglicised management structure. So people who are maybe not as instinctively confused by the notion that being part of polite and civic society might mean talking to unions. So I do think that there's been a change in the global structure of the company, and I'd have to take advice from colleagues around the world in the trade union movement, whether other parts of the world have seen this, but there's less and less directive control from the centre globally, from America, than perhaps there was. So do you, do you think then that this is a kind of evolutionary path that, that many global companies walk along or, or, or is it the influence of the union? Because there's always been a union presence in, in, in Uber. Or is it a combination of the two that, that, that decides exactly when this transformation, if you like, happens? 
I think there's a it's a combination of the two. I think the union presence in Uber has been frankly minimal so far, not enough to have driven this on our own. I think we really would be delusional if we thought that the collectively across the world that our combined union strength had, had, had on its own powerful enough to force this change. I think all we can say is when we dealt with the likes of Southern Cross, which was a fellow mm-hmm. company, which was a, a global private equity operation, and with Walmart and with G4S, other companies we've dealt with and got to this similar point within the past have been on that evolutionary road. And so it's for us, it's quite uh, believable to think that this is the kind of road they're going down. Uh, and they're certainly more open to the things that we've been banging on about in the UK now than perhaps they were obviously prior to the Supreme Court Really? Well, well, exactly. I was going to say the, the unionisation in terms of numbers may be not able to exert much influence, but in terms of the legal process and the union, you know, those cases would not have come to court were it not for for union act, union activity. Yeah, um, and I think and I think part of the part of the process that global corporations, certainly based in the US, particularly where they have a very specific legal uh, climate and culture, part of the process of ending their notion of themselves as disruptor and like you know joining polite society is recognizing that you cannot just dis- decide to dismiss UK-based employment law as perhaps Uber mm. in the past was trying to do because perhaps some of our things that we have in UK employment law, some of it affected over long term by European employment law, just does not fit into a US legal model, and I think. That is a common thing that we found certainly in other US-based, specifically global companies uh, in the past, particularly Walmart. Yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, we've had uh, colleagues from the Union of Tech and Allied Workers uh, on a previous edition of the podcast who say that that their members who are working in American-owned companies are being given like uh, employment contracts based on American law, which yeah. simply are unenforceable in every sense <laughs> I mean, in, in the UK. American lawyers uh, are, are, could be quite as imperialist as other aspects of American government and society. They seem to believe that, uh, you know, everyone fits into American law. So I think if uh, if you are a company, let's just posit this as a theory. You know, if you are a company like Uber and you think, well, we really do want a long term future. We don't just want to disrupt the the, uh, the UK based uh, private hire and taxi business. Well, at some point, you need a management structure that understands civil society in the UK and Europe. And you need a set of lawyers that can navigate uh, Supreme Court judgments and not just pretend you can ignore uh, employment law. And I think we're at that point. And, you know, obviously, uh, that's where we can start making uh, more progress in terms of agreements. Yeah, absolutely. Because I noticed that the uh, that the agreement is described as an access and neutrality agreement. And the the, head, the headline that I think you yourself have used is that it's a freedom from fear situ- situation. So this is this is, if you like, I suppose, a landing stage, isn't it? What happens next? in terms of developing the relationship with the company, but also building up effective collective voice or more effective collective voice? Yeah, and I think I, I'll go through that with you. But I think what's, first of all, if I may say, the, the the big political issue for our union, certainly for the last 10 years and a lot of other unions is, as we say, to try and take that freedom of association that's, start, that's set up in the UN Charter of Human Rights and make sure it no longer ends at the workplace door. Uh, which we frankly believe it does now. And one of the things we've been lobbying, certainly the Labour Party for, for 10 years is to say, OK, we need we need that. We need the right of workers to access unions as much as, or if not more, as another employment bill from the next, next mm. Labour government. Because give union organisers like me and others the chance to talk to workers free from their fear of joining the union and all sorts of things will then follow. And, and workers have the right to... Because we know the biggest single reason workers don't join unions is fear of losing their earnings, losing their job. And 
too often it's very well placed fear. The, one of the biggest political acts a worker can, a working person can take, unfortunately, is to join a union where they work. So anything that we can do to create a level playing field and have a neutrality and access agreement, either through the law, which hasn't worked, unfortunately, or through collective bargaining like we've done now, the neutrality and access agreement is really very important. And it's something we've approached other global corporations with from the past. So as you say, it's a landing stage. It gets that stage where we we can now talk to every driver, all 90,000 of them, at the places where they can they congregate as part of their normal work. So we, we, we no longer have an organising plan to try and chase 90,000 drivers <laughs> around the streets, which, you know, I never say anything's impossible as a union builder, but it would have been a challenge. Uh, we've got that, that, that access to do that. And we've got frameworks within this agreement to start building around some of the Supreme Court judgment findings. And, you know, we can talk about that, what those look like. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd be delighted to do that because, uh, because where Uber drivers congregate, I mean, perhaps not all drivers do congregate. How real are those opportunities? I absolutely understand why you need to get to places where you've got the economies of scale rather than chasing around 90,000 individuals. But in reality, how widespread are those opportunities? It goes to the heart of the the fundamental argument about what was the worker status of uh, Uber drivers. And frankly, not every Uber driver was, you know, um, that was the core thing in, in the front of their minds, exactly what their status was. They're more concerned with earnings and security of earnings. But actually, Uber, it turns out, require all their drivers to come regularly to a, a number of centralised hubs, uh, uh, which are, tends to un- underline the argument we've made for years. Well, you can hardly be self-employed, atomized in constant competition with each other if Uber is requiring you to attend certain hubs. So yeah. that is the key thing and that means we know we can guarantee neutral access to those drivers to put the question to them we have now the opportunity to build a union and it's entirely in their hands we have absolute 100 faith that uber drivers want to form their own union but this is the door that they were now at least able to walk through so i do think uh, that's the key question and that for us was the key issue so that we can actually engage and try and build power with those drivers rather than trying to beg or buy or borrow power continually from the courts and the media and campaigns. Absolutely understood. And, I, and of course, regulation plays a part in that as well. I'm sure the spats Uber have had with TfL in the past will have uh, yeah. fashioned thinking in, in a particular way. But what is it that made the GMB's approach so effective when, of course, there are other union organisations who are present, have been present for some years in Uber. Um, there was, a, should we say, an interesting piece by the IWGB rep, Nader Awad, in The Guardian just l- last Friday. There was a rather more a rather more constructive piece by James Farrer of the ADCU. Why is it the GMB has prevailed when these other two unions have not? We honour the, the, the contribution those unions have made and, you know, their sisters and brothers of ours. I think it's a question of we're, we're in a position to organise to scale. We're in a position to deliver on our side of the access and neutrality agreement to be able to be in those 20-odd uh, hubs and really begin to, to, to move forward. So we're in, that, we're in that position to do that. I mean, James is, a, uh, I think, James and a couple of the other uh, leading members of the uh, App Drivers Union are still members of the GMB and they've been involved in the discussions. And IWGB, I saw, I saw Nadir's piece. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting because this is a debate and it's a debate we welcome. There's a wider debate to be had of how we build power in this new economy. But I have to say that, that so far, I mean, the commentary from The Guardian and, 
Agri GP is obviously made without sight of our agreement. So quite a lot of their analysis of what is in or not in the agreement is is speculation and mm-hmm. um, and actually actually inaccurate. But they didn't ask us for for, okay. for any information of what's in it. We would have been happy to give it them. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's it, it's it, we're not defensive about this kind of critical discussion because this is exactly the point we want to put across, which is, you know, the best guide to theory is practice. But in the end, as organisers, we're practitioners. We're trying to find ways of taking away that fear so that we can begin to work with drivers to build uh, their union going forward, however they want to build it. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, I mean, that is quite a, a change in itself uh, from from the position that's been been adopted five, six, seven years, years ago or so. I mean, it sounds like there is a, there is a very real prospect of effective collaborative working across the, the three, the three union groupings. I, I, I you know, I recognize of course, that of the three, only the GMB is TUC affiliated. The other two would be classed as so-called new, new unions, but nevertheless, they're there, they're organizing to, to some extent, and you, you're putting out a very positive position about the ability yeah, to, to collaborate. We're not in we're not in competition with the other union. You know, we we want to help the drivers build power in Uber, and I, and I think it's also um, moving on to a slightly different thing. Uh, worth talking about that the, there's always been in the history of our union, and and you know, sister unions like Unite. There's always been uh, people within and outside the organisation saying this group of workers can't be organised. Even if you go right back to the retort stokers of the gas uh, the, the gas retorts in in London. And Exeter, and you've also, and you know, the match, the match girls, of course, and you've also had a number of people saying that we shouldn't organise uh, these workers historically, and that's where new unionism kind of came from in the 1890s. And and we have gone through a process of people saying, well, number one, you can't organise Uber, so we then address that in a practical way. Well, let's be honest, there's a number of people who have said you shouldn't organise Uber drivers. Our own union, you know, six or seven years ago, was openly calling for a boycott. Of Uber, and that for me was not the way you approach trying to build power and helping those drivers build power to improve their lives. Although you know it was a tactic that was adopted at the time, so I think that's the discussion we're in. How do you pivot from that campaign of saying you can't or you shouldn't organise this group of workers or that group of workers to how do you practically then work with them to gain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean that that movement, a positive direction, is is very very encouraging. Um, I mean, I suspect part of the mix is. When you've got Uber policy managers like Emma O'Dwyer saying that she has huge respect uh, for friends and colleagues in the, in the GMB, if that's not the sound of a door swinging open, I don't know. I don't know what is. Yeah, and and I think that the other thing I, I would say, and this is again some 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 of this is slightly about the a slight clash of union cultures between the states and the UK as well, which is led by the different very very different legal comparisons uh, that that you can make. Is that you know in the UK most recognition agreements are not achieved through the balloting CAC regulated uh, thing, even to this day twenty years on and so our deeper culture recognition agreements are just a snapshot of where a relationship is at any given moment and a flaw to to evolve so the agreement is not the finished product and i think some of the tone of the guardian comment was was kind of misunderstanding of that when we don't call them contracts in uh, uk movement in the same way in the way that the the state's uh, legal culture is so you wouldn't expect to have everything resolved so it, it in the UK uh, labour movement culture, less so maybe elsewhere, it's no great surprise for people to learn that the very first thing we did when we signed that agreement with Emma and, and uh, Jamie was register a, dis- a, a disagreement. 
So we've, we've agreed what we agree on and we've registered what we disagree on and what we disagree on are things like exactly how they should abide by the Supreme Court. Judgment. Now, for, for, for a UK union builder, that, that's not a particularly strange or surprising circumstances to find yourself in. To give another very recent example, we've had the most bitter, horrid dispute with British Gas. But we still have recognition with British Gas. We still have an agreement with British Gas that goes back many, many decades. And that's so we're in a circumstance that I think may not be clear to colleagues in the trade union movement and the, and the, and the, the legal world in the States and elsewhere, but it's, it's, it's fairly normal and natural for us. So there were very distinct and sharp differences between ourselves and Uber. And, and to put another way, we have an agreement with Uber. That doesn't mean to say we now promote Uber. We have agreements in the gambling, hospitality, drinking and uh, tobacco industries, but that does not mean the GMB promotes smoking, gambling and, and, and drinking. This, these are all fairly commonplace positions for ourselves. So it is an agreement with Uber as a floor, as you described it quite well, is a starting point for building a relationship, not all of a sudden that we're unilaterally endorsing Uber, or as, as some colleagues have said, uh, not necessarily friends of the movement, but somehow this is the GMB involved in a PR stunt of some sort. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of that chat as well. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, one, one often finds that sometimes one's own members will, will say, well, you know, that doesn't look like, yeah, that's not a very valuable deal. That's not a very attractive proposition. And what you hope will happen, <laughs> and what I've always found to happen, is you you get members who are in non-recognised areas coming back and saying, "I give my eye teeth for that because actually that gives me an awful lot more protection than I would otherwise have." And and I think obviously I've been a, a, a an organiser with GMB many many years, and and I think what's interesting the the primary point of this agreement was neutrality and access, as I say, and that was important, very important. If we're going to have a the drivers going to have a fighting chance of having an actual union rather than a, a piece of paper. But actually, there's, there's some clauses we managed to reach agreement on in terms of frameworks that I have to say are stronger than some in some agreements that are very long standing in, in other parts of the, the economy. I mean, one thing I'd, I would point to is, of course, uh, depending on individual driver circumstances, following the ruling that was for a relatively small number of drivers around back pay, drivers in Uber now through the union have an opportunity to claim direct from the company anything that they're due without the need to further enrich our friends in the legal profession and go into court. I, I, and I think that's quite an attractive proposition for, for for drivers. And, you know, it will depend on their circumstances and how long they've given. But there's a process we've put in place under this agreement to do that, as there is to, to access pensions for the first time and to have the national pay principles that will enable people, us independently, to audit over a period of time with each driver whether or not any driver's earnings have fallen below the foundation living wage and with an agreement that from Uber, if we find that, they will make up the difference. So, so those kind of things are flaws which to move ahead with. And, and, and I think the issue that's of distinct discussion with us so far, which is not resolved, but at least we think we've got the mechanism to resolve it, is how on earth we're going to put in place a situation where Uber does pay for waiting times. And this was one of the points that was in the dark space. And that's absolutely right. That's not just a pay issue. That's a well-being working time issue and we have got an agreement to disagree about that we believe waiting time should be paid and, and there should be a duty of care and uber are working with us to find out how they get there and some of that is to do with uber's will to do so some of it is to do with trying to apply what is essentially 20th century employment law that was written 10 years before uber was even born into an app based employment model where 
a lot of Uber drivers will be logged on to several other similar apps of their competitors at any one time, whether it's Ola, Captain, Bolt, and so on. So there are actual complexities here about working working that through. And of course, we the answer to that from the union point of view is to organise the whole industry. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But you're, you're right that there is a bigger point here about how you organise and how, and how you unionise in an economy which is increasingly app-based. You know, that's a, a holy grail that hasn't yet been found. And we're, all we can say is we don't, we've by no means claimed to have found the holy grail, but for 10 years or so now, like other sister unions, we have been trying to address that matter. Probably since the crash in the austerity years of 2010, the number of people in insecure work of one type or another, whether that's zero hours contracts or tiny hours contracts or uh, app-based driving. You know, you t- we think now maybe eight or nine million people, whereas in the past it was maybe only a million people. So it's an expanding part of the economy and we need to find ways of addressing it. But here's the most important thing. We need to find ways of, of applying our collective union principles to that new labour market rather than responding to the individualization of work by trying to individualize the trade union movement that has been a cul-de-sac and it's and it's failed us but you know we've got uh, the person who in the gmb who put this together and pursued it was mick ricks mick ricks has been in the trade union movement for a very long time and one of the things that characterizes a lot of his work is taking the principles of collective agreements if not the rigidity of how it might have worked in old industries and finding ways to apply it and he's reached at least a point in the discussion now about how you might begin to do that but it's a long 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 project and it's nothing short of the trade union movement having to fit itself into a new world rather than demanding the new world fits itself into us you know yeah well absolutely i I wouldn't disagree with that analysis uh, at all martin one final thing that occurs to me is the proof of this pudding is going to be in the eating what are the review arrangements that you've got as part of the new relationship with uber that gives you confidence that they will be true to their word. They won't suddenly become disheartened and switch to a hard stance when things get a bit difficult, like when the claims for back pay start piling up, and and, and that that actually there are foundations here that will satisfy the needs of all the parties going into the future. Again, taking those very old collective principles and applying them as we can bespoke to this situation, the only way an agreement can be policed and reviewed is through uh, the workforce themselves, electing shop stewards, and getting those structures in place to hold things to account on a micro level, regional level, and a national level. And that's the first task. And that's, uh, you know, that's a conversation with the drivers about well, what are them within the frameworks, what are their agendas, what are their priorities, what are the key things that are important. We wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, lecture drivers on that. That'll be, that discussion will go forward. In terms of formal reviews, it's quarterly to see where we are and the key things that we have distinct differences now on around the waiting times and the duty of care and the, the pay principles. Uh, and that's on a national level. But again, we know that you cannot re- review and have an effective agreement uh, from the top down. It, it, it doesn't work. The movement has had many, many uh, episodes of uh, making that mistake. So it really is now the door to be open. Our priorities to get out there, talk to the drivers and begin to, to see their uh, answers to those questions. You know, we are in a situation, and this is a conversation we're having with uh, the, the Labour Party, we're in a slightly strange situation where industrial relations seem to be very, quite a few miles ahead of employment law um, at the moment. And um, that, that and we're not waiting for employment law to catch up, but we are making the point, and in fairness, we had to make this point to Matthew Taylor as well uh, in uh, a couple of years ago, we are making the point that employment law really does need to catch up. Because even before you have the uh, three ports 
being imposed on us. There are vast parts of the labour market in the UK at the moment that are effectively employment law-free zones because people have theoretical rights who, who cannot apply them and, and enact them. So these aren't just issues to do with union building in this new economy. These are issues really to do with social policy and the society we're developing. So there's that part of it is really quite key. That's not the reason we've done this, but we're very conscious that uh, ourselves and other unions are getting towards a long way ahead of employment law. And the best, best example, I think, of that as elsewhere is the fire and rehire campaigns that are forced upon us and unite and also elsewhere. The latest being, I think, Weetabix has uh, announced this. And so, you know, that is legal. We know it's legal. It's, it's immoral and wrong, but it's legal. And therefore, we need new employment laws. We need laws that are fit for going forward and not fit for the 19th and 20th centuries. Brilliant. Martin, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Well, listeners, I hope you'll share my view, having listened to my conversation with Martin, that if anything deserves a special edition of Union Jews, it's the GMB Uber deal. Quite extraordinary and really interesting to hear Martin put it in the sort of historical and political context to do with so many other things that we've discussed on Union Jews episodes in the past. Things like free ports, um, the experience of tech workers uh, in dealing with US style employment contracts that have no relevance or, or enforceability in the UK, digital unionism, the match girls dispute, uh, the British gas fire and rehire dispute, the links and signposts to all those other issues that Martin and I touched upon in our discussion can be found on the companion blog post to this podcast. If you head over to the makesyouthink.com website, go into the blog section of that site, you will find sitting right there for you a companion blog post containing all the links to all those things, including to the IWGB article in The Guardian that we touched on and the ADCU response to the GMB deal. And between you and me, I'm really hopeful that we can get James Farrow, the General Secretary of the ADCU, onto a future episode of Union to Use to give his perspective about new unionism and organising in this sector. Meanwhile, if you've got any queries or comments about the show, as ever, you can contact us by email, unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can find us on Twitter at Jews Union. Please do let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your views. My thanks to Martin for being so willing to take part and being so candid in our conversation. My thanks too for Becky Wright of Unions 21 for facilitating the discussion to start with. Thanks for that, Becky. And my thanks above all to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time in our company. It's been great to have you along. We'll be back to our usual schedule next week. Until then, stay safe, look after yourself, look after each other, and I'll see you next time on Union Jews. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.